You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. On April 3rd, Margaret Dawson was found brutally murdered on the floor of her white Volkswagen. On the following day, Police Chief Tucker received a phone call from Franklin Wills, a man who knew every detail of the murder. He claimed to have the gift of clairvoyance. I do believe that there are many people in the world with an ability to perceive matters beyond the range of ordinary perception. Man on a Swing, a trip into the world of psychic phenomena. I just realized that there's one person who knows who the murderer is, the victim. Man on a Swing, starring Academy Award winners Cliff Robertson and Joel Gray. From Paramount Pictures, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me this week is Mr. Dennis Tafoya. Hi, Mike. It's great to be on the show. Also with me this week is Mr. Scout Tafoya. Hello. First time, long time. This week, we are looking at the 1974 supernatural crime film, Man on a Swing. Directed by Frank Perry, the film was written by David Zellig Goodman and based on the book Girl on the Volkswagen Floor by William Arthur Clark. The film stars Cliff Robertson as Detective Lee Tucker, who investigates the mysterious murder of a young woman. When things are at a stalemate with the case, he's approached by Franklin Willis, played by Joel Gray, a supposed psychic with uncanny insights into the case. Now, we're going to be getting into some major spoilers on this episode, so if you haven't seen Man on a Swing, turn off the show and come back later. We will still be here. So, Dennis, you kind of brought this movie to the fore. I had never even heard of it before. So, tell me, when was the first time that you saw Man on a Swing, and what did you think? It was made for TV, so I saw it on TV. Uh, it came out in 1974, so I would have been you know, 14, 15 years old. And it, I saw it at night uh, alone, and it scared the hell out of me. I still remember, especially uh, the, a couple of scenes that really stood out, one with um, Cliff Robertson's uh, the character played by Cliff Robertson, his wife, Dr- Dorothy Tristan is the astro- actress, being terrorized through a mail slot <laughs> and uh and that really that really got to me so uh yeah and it was it was a really it was a hard to find movie i think because it was made for television you know it didn't get a sort of general release or anything like that i don't think it was ever shown in theaters that i know it was very slow to come to um uh, you know to dvd so for years i would just watch it whenever it showed up on television which wasn't very frequently but i've always loved the film i always thought it was really interesting it's um uh, I'm a crime guy, so I write crime novels. I'm fascinated by true crime. I consume a ton of of uh, very disturbing true crime stories. And having that background for the film as well, um, which I didn't realize actually for years, it's just something that kind of got in my head. And I've always been sort of an evangelist for the film. How about you, Scout? Obviously, my uh, <laughs> my dad is the other guest in this program. So um, because he wanted to watch it, it uh, went on the uh, the TV in our home. So I watched it because he was a huge fan of it. I remember, actually, the, the first time I saw it was because he found, uh, I want to say they were like direct to DVR bootlegs that somebody had put on eBay. And he bought... <laughs> 
he bought that and he bought Seance on a Wet Afternoon. So we watched those as a double bill. Crimes committed by uh, fake mediums. So that was a, that was a fitting introduction to the film. Uh, I didn't know anything about Frank Perry or Eleanor Perry. I barely. I, I basically my only entree was that I knew Joel Gray was in Cabaret. So it was very peculiar to see him outside of that, just because for as long as I could remember thinking about Joel Grey, my, it, it, it all started and ended with him in Cabaret. It was like he was trapped in that movie for me. And so it was very strange to know that he had made other films and that he had been so winningly creepy in uh, Man on a Swing. He's, he's, if anything, he's even more perfect in Man on a Swing than he is in Cabaret, and he's very good yes. at that. I first saw Joel Gray as uh, in uh, Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. So for the longest time, I <laughs> oh thought he was a small God. Asian man. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, gosh. Uh, Fred wow. Fred Ward, right? Is yeah. Yes, yeah. Fred yeah. Ward. Yeah. Yeah. We're a strangely like working class uh, secret agent. He was a uh, uh, Bond in in denim, basically. If I remember right. correctly. Now we have a lot of Frank Perry heads. I don't know if they they call themselves anything special, like parrot heads for Jimmy Buffett fans or anything, but Frank Perry heads are probably yelling at the radio right now, so I just want to clear this up and say this actually did have a theatrical run, surprisingly. Going to the New York Times review, they talk about it playing at the Lowe's 2 down on 45th Street and the Lowe's Tower East down on 3rd Avenue. But I will tell you, I can see this as a TV movie. This felt like a TV movie. And especially because you probably watched pretty much the same version that I watched. I've never seen this on Blu-ray. And that version that we've seen together, wow, that thing looks rough as hell. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes, it does. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like it was transferred from a 16 millimeter you know, yeah. print yeah. that was just floating around. Yeah, it definitely looked like something that someone had just perpetually recorded off of a, you know, on a on a VHS. It doesn't look clear at all. But I got to say, if you guys can find all of films, put the Blu-ray out a little while ago and it's just beautiful. I got to get that. I got to get my hands on that. All of films are always so great at putting so many extras on those DVD. Oh, wait. No, sorry. (laughs) <laughs> they're kind of notorious for never putting extras on no, their discs. Their logo is also very strange. It's it's almost like uh, preparing you for the disappointment to come that it's the movie <laughs> nothing else by having a strange sort of almost existential sad trombone kind of intro. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. There's not. Uh, there's no commentary. There's no nothing on it. It's just very stripped down chapters and play. That's yeah. what you get on those things. So <laughs> I remember, you don't even get a trailer. That's yeah. right. For years, there was a, the only DVD I ever bought of um, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. It just starts playing. There isn't even a right. mix. <laughs> <laughs> Like a student film somebody recorded for media studies. Yeah. Just pops right in there. Yeah. Absolutely. Even those ones off of eBay probably had at least a menu. Well, that was well, I will say there's a there's a brief weird connection between Perry Heads and Parrot Heads in that Frank Perry's next film after yes. Man on a Swing was Rancho uh, Deluxe, starring uh, Sam Waterston and Jeff Bridges, which has a score by Jimmy Buffett. My favorite Frank Perry fact is he's Katy Perry's uncle. That's right. Talent runs deep in that family. From Jimmy Buffett to Katy Perry. <laughs> yeah, I love Rancho Deluxe. That was another film that was um, uh, kind of ignored for a lot of years, I think. And uh, I, I always enjoyed the heck out of that film. Sam Waterston playing a uh, Native American, which he did 
several times in his career. It was kind of interesting. But. Yeah, it's it's a it's one of those films that are sort of uh, post Howard Hawks things that basically he stopped yeah. directing after Rio Bravo and Rio uh, Lobo or and, and whatever the the third one was. But uh, a bunch of people started making movies that were just like that. Those kind of mismatched buddy pictures set in the Midwest or the Southwest, and that was definitely despite the Buffett music, it's kind of a high watermark of that genre. Yeah, I had never heard of this movie at all. Uh, it was NoirCon two years ago, 2016, and there was a panel discussion of great crime films from the 1970s. And I, I'll tell you, Dennis, I'm sitting there going, "Oh yeah, don't forget about this. Don't forget about this." And just like, well, actually, no, you know, and I'm like, I'm, I'm correcting all these things in my head and just being this real, you know, pedantic asshole in the back and stuff. <laughs> And then you spoke, and I'm just like, I've never heard of this film in my entire life. And you're like, oh, yeah, Cliff Robertson, Joel Gray. I'm like, what the fuck, man? I know these guys. <laughs> you know, I, I'm one of the few people that saw Music of Chance in the theater, you know? Like, wow. come, come on. What, what is going on here? I don't know this Joel Gray film. And Cliff Robertson, I love that guy, you know? And, yeah, never heard of it whatsoever. And then oddly enough last year we ended up doing two other frank perry movies we did mommy dearest and the swimmer and then this was going to be the third um so it got bumped out a little bit because of me going to shanghai but frank perry renaissance going on here on the projection booth like all of a sudden he's he's neck and neck with david lynch as far as how many films by one director (laughs) we've covered Yeah, so I just listened to your uh, podcast about the swimmer, which is a, a fascinating thing. I think um, I think Frank Perry very much had this kind of moment in the late '60s, early '70s, where he did "Play It As It Lays" and "The Swimmer," David and Lisa. These films that were very uh, zeitgeisty uh, of that uh, you know late '60s, early '70s period. I mean, um, that adaptation of "Play It As It Lays" is. Is kind of fascinating. It's a difficult novel to do any justice to. Tuesday Weld, you couldn't pick unless you got Didion herself to play that role. Uh, there would be no one more perfect than Tuesday Weld. I was just talking with some people on Twitter about that film because I saw it for the first time not long ago, and it's just incredible. I had a friend call Tuesday Weld the uh, the female Marlon Brando, and it's tough to argue with that assessment. She's so strong in the film and it's kind of interesting the progression from the 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 kind of the stripped down smaller independent ones that frank and his wife eleanor made in the early 60s david and lisa and ladybug ladybug which are these great strange kind of disquieting allegorical things about trying to live in cold war america and then the swimmer and diary of a mad housewife which are these very big kind of muscular allegorical things and then after their divorce he gets more introspective and i think sort of starts to embrace what he can do with the edit a little more than he was ever interested in beforehand the swimmer he was notoriously sort of had to share that with Sidney pollack i forget what the dispute was mike maybe you remember that but it, he 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 sort of finds himself for a brief moment in a way that i don't think he had beforehand where he was he was always more interested in leaving the camera on for a lot longer and you see that especially in last summer and uh trilogy the the truman capote stuff he was doing but with the joan didion it's almost like he kind of discovers modernism and uh starts to embrace his inner elaine renee uh and man on a swing i think is is it might be uh, that in play as it lays are probably the best films he does in this period if not in his whole career 
because I think he's more willing to use film as a way to kind of strip down people and assumptions about society and, uh, you know, sort of the institution of the police and marriage and stuff like that in a more incisive and less broad way than he had before. I mean, The Swimmer is, it's a really great and interesting film, but it broadcasts all of its points very loudly by, I mean, just by having Burt Lancaster take his shirt off, you know, right away that he's, he's trying to tell you something in all caps. That was um, the guest on the podcast talking about the swimmer. Really nailed that. Um, the, it seemed a little schizophrenic. That film, sort of caught between two periods, mm. a standard kind of studio film with very intrusive music and uh, big performances from people, and what was coming, uh, you know, in the seventies. Uh, that would allow you to to be a little more, like you're saying, introspective to develop kind of moments and symbolic images and things like that. And you're talking about the editing. I mean. There are very few, if any, establishing shots in this movie. We are just thrown into everything, even from the beginning. Like, the beginning of this film, it kind of reminded me of the longer version of of Steven Spielberg's Duel, where we hear the car start at the beginning. But then, bam, we are right there with this police car, following right behind it, camera locked onto it. And this police car, just the guy's got the sirens. Well, he doesn't have the sirens going. He's got the lights going and he's honking. The honking just puts you right on edge because everybody hates that sound. And he's just honking and hauling ass. And you're just like, what am I in for right now? Well, it's funny, the guy, the, they, they, they turn the sirens on for a minute and Cliff Robertson tells them, he says something like, knock that shit off or whatever right. it is, <laughs> you know, so it's clearly yeah. like there's, there's, it's, 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 it's got this kind of uh, Godard's breathless thing where they, you know, he's thrown you right into the thick of this and, and you get to know Cliff Robertson just in that one gesture, which is he's not making a big deal out of anything that he's basically just trying to, you know, do his job. That opening without music. I thought for years after having first watched this film that it didn't have music um, because that impression from the opening is so strong. You get pretty far into the movie before there are any sort of musical cues. And the music really is just some cues and stuff that's going on in the background of a couple of scenes. So uh, I thought, like I said, I came away with the impression that there wasn't any music in the film at all because it didn't open with the score. That to me was one of the things that very minimal use that really increased the creepiness because it doesn't signal to you what's going on and it doesn't sort of defend you from, you know, from what's happening on screen. Well, that in and of itself, using the little bits of that, it's sort of this layer low chiffrin. It's almost like jazz, basically. They just kind of come in for a little bit and then disappear again. And they don't necessarily comment on anything. And that right, is like kind of right out of the French New Wave playbook. The music isn't there to tell you how to feel. The music is there to just kind of keep the momentum going. And if anything, it's sort of, it, it more comments on the setting than anything else. It, it, there's no there's no sort of emotion to it, which makes it like you're saying even you know all the all the creepier. Yeah, you're not about to go out and you know listen to uh, theme from Man on a Swing. No, I couldn't tell you anything about that other than the little little bits of this and that to amp up some of the creepiness in uh, you know the scenes, like I said, where uh, the Cliff Robertson's wife is being terrorized at night and that kind of thing. A little and like it's more almost like electronic burbling, you know, hmm. uh, that kind of thing. So used minimally and very effectively yeah i'm no expert when it comes to music and musical instruments but it always it reminds me of that water harp sound that you kind of get yeah oh sure that just really sets your your teeth on edge especially at the end after everything cuts out and we're Uh back alone in the dark with those credits oh yeah 
that's yeah. that's one of the best one of the best endings ever is he says you know it, i think it's it's um it it would be wise for us to keep in touch or something like that it's, Ooh, it's yeah. like the end of hannibal or something yeah. it's just so perfectly creepy it's it's and i'm it really fascinated but well you know i reread the book uh, as well of course we're watching the movie a couple times starting this and the, and uh, the this is based on a true story which makes it of course always creepier that's something that um uh, to me, there's nothing more disturbing than than you know, based on a true story. When you when you're talking about this territory, um, it's kind of fascinating. There's a there is a guy currently in jail for life. The uh, Keating character, played by Charles Ar- uh, Alport, is in jail, you know, for life for uh, no, and just like in the movie, not for the murder of the first victim, but for the murder of the second victim, who was a a 12 year old girl. What's, it's kind of fascinating because William A. Clark, who wrote the book, never wrote anything else. I can't find a trace of him online anywhere. And there's no independent sort of corroboration of the story as told in the, in the book, at least online, that I can find. Um, even though, you know, it's not hard to find the real names of the people involved and the case is still sort of remembered in, uh, in Ohio where it took place. Wild. We still don't know who, who is responsible for the, the first one in the Volkswagen then. Right. Officially, that is still open. But the, I think the idea would, was that they weren't going to prosecute the person who was responsible for it, you know, basically in order to have something to uh, to go after him with. His, his name was Jimmy Wayne Howard. He's hmm. still in prison in Ohio. Like I said, he was sent up for the murder that's the second murder depicted, depicted in the film. The idea was if anything ever went wrong or they needed something to keep him in jail, they would go after him for the other crime where there unfortunately was less prosecutable evidence at the time. Well, the movie really does start out as a police procedural, and it's very cut and dry. We're going to interview this witness. We're going to talk to this guy. We're going to hear like, oh, there was you know, this next to the body. So we're going to go from this point to this point to this point. And it very much feels like a TV movie. It feels like we're on an episode of Law and Order. And then 20 minutes into the movie, it just shifts and we're introduced to this new character. And we're introduced to the Joel Grey character through a phone call, which is an interesting way to introduce a character. We don't see him first. We hear him. And I know, Mike, you read the book. That whole angle doesn't appear until about halfway through the book. And and I so I think they wanted that sense of, like you were saying, it's a procedural. This is a police force working Here's the medical examiner. It's just a guy in a plaid coat. You know what I mean? It's not. Uh, it's not super glamorous. They're the the uh, the office, the police station seems like it's underground somewhere. It takes a while. In the movie, it's 25 minutes. I clocked it. 25 minutes in, when Joel Gray appears coming down the stairs into uh-huh. his basement police station with his eccentric dress and his weird pixie-like manner, it's uh, really <laughs> jarring. And it just, those white shoes. Those white shoes. shoes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And he wears white shoes and white clothes so much through the film. He's so much on stage. And it's really, I think the interplay between Cliff Robertson and Joel Grey is what makes the movie. The whole thing is watching Cliff Robertson react to Joel Grey and his incredibly flamboyant and weirdly hostile play that he's doing all through there as this alleged psychic. It's it's kind of awesome that, on the one hand, the film is sort of about 
acting and performance because you've got Cliff Robertson doing, you know, giving the much more subtle performance. But, you know, there's so much going on in all of his facial tics and in the long shots of him just watching him, especially in that final meeting with the psychiatrists where he's sitting there just sort of slowly grilling him and trying to get him to reveal some tell that lets him know you know exactly how much of what he's seeing is put on and how much of it is him crying for attention it's it's amazing because Joel Grey on the one hand has to be this huge thing but he's also masking this fear that he's going to be sort of seen that whatever his actual intention is is going to be revealed so it has to kind of camping things up more and more and more and more to get away from his own you know his his whatever his normal behavior might look like so that people can't read what his expression is and so the more he throws himself into pretending to be the murdered girl the less you can sort of get a fix on what his motivations are. And the thing about the structure is sort of, I love it because it's, it's again, it's that weird modernist thing where you're watching what appears to be something normal. And so like a lot of this film, there's a little bit of Hitchcock and all of it. And the idea that after seeing this very ordinary kind of uh, investigation in walks this new plot element. And the film doesn't really tell you that it's about this new thing for quite a long time. It isn't until really they figure out that he uh, uh, failed the, uh, the uh, the murder test that they have him do the two out of twenty five results that lets Cliff, Cliff Robertson know that he might be a fake that you kind of understand that the movie was always about these two but it just didn't let on that it was about them it's a very uh, it's a very modern way of uh, 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 f- broadcasting its themes because it seems like Joel Grey has kind of creeped into the movie and slowly made it about him when it should be about him. Well, by the end of it, you've forgotten that there was a murder that he was trying to solve. There's such a great supporting cast. Everybody the camera falls on is a great character actor of the period. Like Joseph Summer, people who carried whole movies have yeah. like two lines in this film. So it did have this great workmanlike cast behind it even though it's very much about the interplay between those two the meetings he has with the woman who was um uh, assaulted by mm-hmm. the guy that they ultimately arrest those meetings that he has with her where she's at once sort of hysterical and completely exhausted and just sort of pol- like not even politely just putting up with cliff robertson while he's at her house and those great shots of her in the den looking out mm. through the screen door with him on the other side of it just so clearly unaware of what it's like to live life after this experience which he then gets put through by being terrorized by somebody maybe joel gray and maybe not right yeah and you're right about the supporting cast that is just remarkable uh, there are uh, so many faces where you just go, I know that guy. Where do I know that guy from? And there, th- th- mm. I was so surprised that, delightfully so, that they switched the protagonist of the book from the Lane Smith character, the Ted Ronan character, to right. the Cliff Robertson character. So we go from having the film investigated by the reporter to it being investigated by the investigator, which makes a lot more sense. So he's kind of more central to it. So he doesn't have to skirt around all the legalities and all these things and have to convince the police and then go back to this. And the the book gets a little much when it goes back and forth, but obviously if it's based on something true, then it kind of has to be told from that perspective, but they've made a really smart shift going from there uh and then lane smith i love lane smith and he just has that folksy quality about him and i love when they have their conversation about do you believe in psychics what you want to see me about you read a lot of books 
An educated man. I'm guilty of the second charge. What do you think of the occult? Crock of shit. Why? Got this guy who says he's a clairvoyant. Wants to help out on the case. It's come up a couple things, but... Things you've held out? Yeah, but don't you put that in the paper. I don't want to be any kind of laughing stock, you hear? Crock of shit, huh? Lee, a lot of people who've read a whole lot more than I have feel very differently about it, but uh, I'm from Missouri. Yeah, and uh, George uh, Voskovec, and one of the things, he actually, um, I remember about him was he played a psychic, Peter uh, Herkos, a real alleged psychic who was involved in the Boston Strangler investigation uh, in the Boston oh. Strangler film with Tony Curtis, weirdly enough, as the Boston Strangler. He played Peter Hooker. So I always wondered if that was a little bit of, uh, you know, somebody who, you know, had had experience in that world, kind of. And Elizabeth Wilson, who plays the psychiatrist. I love her. She's been in a million a million movies um, and is always fun to watch. Just really uh, as recently as Nobody's Fool with uh, Paul Newman right before he. Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Small, yeah, small credited role in that. And uh, Alice Drummond. Alice Drummond. Alice who was, Drummond. Yeah. yeah right. The librarian in Ghostbusters. Yes. Very young. It's like her second film. And she's relatively young playing the mother of the victim. It does weirdly reinforce that feeling of it being a TV movie because all these people did a ton of television. Uh, you know, and that's where in the seventies you would have known them all from. Well, yeah, and Mr. Buck Rogers himself with Gil Gerard yes. as Donald Forbes, right. and you think like, okay, he's going to be somebody. He's going to come back. You know, it's one of those like going back to Law and Order. It's like when you watch as many movies and television shows, you start to recognize who's actually who. And so, if you see somebody who has even just a modicum of stardom, you go, okay, that's the killer. Because I don't know the rest <laughs> of these guys, but there's no way they're going to waste this actor he's going to come yep. back and he's going to be the murderer by the end of it so gil gerard here we are watching it in you know 2017 2018 is just like what, what, what yeah of course it's going to be him he's got to come back like he's going to be <laughs> the guy driving the car at the end or something right yep. and he just vanishes basically <laughs> just when stuff starts to get interesting he asks for a lawyer he's gone Everybody in the movie is Janet Lee and Psycho. It's you expect <laughs> him to have a bigger part, which is kind of genius. I mean, it's sort of like he's he's taking like a Quinn Martin cast and using them for two minutes to kind of throw you off. You never really get a fix on on anything until you, way way into the movie that everybody here is essentially just one appendage on the story of these two people kind of doing battle in uh, tiny cramped uh, claustrophobic rooms. And there were some complaints that I saw, some reviews where it was just like, yeah, there's there's too many people to choose from when it comes to suspects. And I'm just like, well, that actually kind of is more true to life in that the way that yeah. they go through and talk to people and try to eliminate them. But they always kind of keep that little thumbtack in their names like this guy might come back. We don't know. Everybody looks like they could do it, you know. There's, sure. there's no, and 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 that's what I love too. The little detail which I missed the first time I saw it was Joel Gray stops by to uh, uh, terrorize Cliff Robertson's wife, uh, Dorothy Tristan, and 
you know, that they share that wonderful moment where he's shouting at her to take the handkerchief and he's just got this weird impish grin on his face the whole time. And then afterwards they're talking about him and they mention that he's a suspect. And it hadn't occurred to me at that point that like, that's the reason that they're keeping him around is because he might've done it. But like, how creepy is that? That rather than just being a guy who might be helping them, he's somebody who might've done it and he's just wandering around. Right. The way it plays out too, the whole use of his agency in the murder is never really established. Cliff Robertson raises the idea of hypnosis only at the end of the film, which Mm -hmm. is really fascinating. The way it ends where it's like, yeah, it seems pretty clear he had insider knowledge because he worked next to the guy who did it. But did he actually compel the guy in some way to do Mm -hmm. the crime? And it's never addressed uh, other than he has clearly some weird self-aggrandizing, you know, evil intent. It's hard to think of a film that's like that, where the device is, is so obscure. Yeah, by the time they bring up, I mean, you know, that, that they come in and they find those, I mean, it's kind of uh, Zodiac-esque that it seems mm. so cut and dry mm. that definitely this guy who just happened to work next to the killer and knows all this stuff about him and is clearly capable of some kind of psychic misdeed, like it would have to be that. But then the movie ends and you really don't know, which is fantastic. <laughs> I think all movies should end that way, where you're left wondering if the real killer is still out there just and just going to keep doing it because they've got nothing to pin, you know, they've got no concrete evidence. Yeah, this does have a real Zodiac vibe to it, just, even with the amount of name talent that we see throughout this or familiar faces. And then, yeah, just that you're sure, like, oh, that guy, he must have done it. Oh, wait, no, this other guy, he looks like a pretty good suspect, too. Right. Is it Arthur Lee Allen or Charles Mom or whoever, you know, whoever the or Bob Vaughn or whatever it is, the the guy in the basement. It's uh, it's fascinating. uh, There's there's a cast connection that I really enjoy, which is that Peter Masterson, who I think plays his uh, police, uh, the guy just under him in the police force who's constantly, Mm. you know, who's the one who brings the phone call to his attention. He was in The Exorcist the year before as one of the clinicians. And there is a scene in this that sort of reminds me of a lot of The Exorcist, where it's this performative kind of possession that he's undergoing, and everybody has to sort of just watch on in horror as they relive, you know, the murder of this person. And it does kind of feel like an exorcism, but it's obviously more low key and weirdly more insidious for not uh, not making the sense that everything does in The Exorcist. It really one of the things too that was uh, I spent some time looking at and thinking about this was. Um, what was going on culturally in 1974 about psychic phenomena, you know, and all that kind of stuff. It's, it was a very interesting time. I mean, like it was the heyday of like uh, Seth Speaks and Chariots of the Gods and, uh, <laughs> you know, and a lot of very uh, credulous treatment of psychic phenomena. And um, uh, it, it has a very interesting cultural moment. It reminded me a little bit of like movies like The Entity with Barbara mm. Hershey, you know, where there's a scientific framework. They're trying to determine whether this is real or, you know, bogus. I really love that. They do the test and he flips out during the test with, once again, is one of his insane pixie-like performances where he's dancing all around the room, breaking stuff. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You know, and uh, and that's so fun. It's so much fun because it's obviously, you know, it's very transgressive. He's obviously messing with them and making them pay. Like when he trashes the woman's, the psychiatrist's office, you know, during the trance, you know, that kind of stuff. I enjoyed those elements a lot. It was very... Um, 
kind of forward looking, you know, very kind of progressive in a way of like, uh, well, you know, maybe he's a psychic, but let's do some testing. Let's figure it out. And now, you know, you've got uh, <laughs> movies where people just show up and announce, yeah, I'm a medium. And okay, cool. Now we run, you know? Yeah. There's a, there's a, a much more a much more precise attitude towards the whole thing back then, which is great because even you know e- even with all of them trying to uh, determine everything, of course they come up empty because there's no there's no way to prove any of this nonsense. Right. I'm studying the effect of negative reinforcement on ESP ability. The effect? I'll tell you what the effect is. It's pissing me off. Well, then maybe my theory is correct. You can keep the five bucks I've had. I will, Mister. Yeah, I'm constantly because I co-host the uh, the Kolchak tapes where we're talking about oh, Kolchak, the yeah. Night Stalker, ah, and constantly trying to impress upon listeners and also my co-host just the weirdness of that time because that was also mm. 1974 and just the whole idea like the last episode we talked about had uh, spontaneous combustion and I was like you have to realize like. You know, Arthur C. Clarke's uh, Amazing World and In Search Of, all of these things were on television. And then, yeah, you had the Carillion Witness at movie theaters. Chariots of the Gods was treated as a documentary. All of these things happening. And, yeah, it was just like after the 60s and all of the crap that went down during then, it felt like we were just lost, completely unmoored. And Psychic Phenomenon felt like it could have been a real thing. That's all the stuff I spent the last couple of days kind of looking at that, all that, uh, you know, secret life of plants and and all that stuff. Yeah, it was very much like, well, you know, maybe maybe there's something to all this, you know, and uh, it was really um, a fascinating time. And it's really kind of fun, like I said, to think about it in that context, to, to think about what it was like. I mean, I was like I said, I was uh, 14, 15 years old in 74, and all of this was really of the moment. You know, uh, then the things we read, the movies we watched, getting taken to see. Uh, I remember having to get a ride to see Legend of Boggy Creek and all that, uh, kind of, you know, all that stuff. It was um, yeah, very much um, in our minds. It's the golden age of regional filmmaking. But also around that time, there's all kinds of great, crazy countercultural cinema. So even people who were thought of as maybe being uh, uh, kind of straight and narrow filmmakers who had pretty fixed ideas on things. Uh, everybody went a little crazy around this time. You've got in 1973, you've got Day of the Dolphin, The Crazies, The Holy Mountain, uh, Nicholas Ray's last film, which is insane, Badlands and The Wicker Man and uh, Messiah of Evil and stuff like that. And then in 74, when this comes out, you've also got The Terminal Man and Phase 4 So and Parallax View, too. So you've got this kind of creeping, paranoid thing that, you know, like like you're saying, that everything could be real, but what if nothing's real? And uh, and and also in the sort of the, the ground zero for this kind of new psychedelic thing, the Ken Russell and uh, Alejandro Hodorowsky and Cars That Ate Paris, I think everything is kind of exploding and crazy and there's no like like the only thing that was like true north were the godfather movies and nobody expected those to come from anywhere so everything everything must have felt so experimental and strange at that time well speaking of strange i have to bring this up because this is the one like if there's one weak moment of this film it's that Mm -hmm. quote-unquote high speed pursuit (laughs) at the end Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, that just, oh man, that hurts. That uh, hurts to watch that. It, oh, wow. it really does. It is, once again, it reinforces that feeling like it was a TV movie shot in three weeks, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, in Glendale or something like that. It really, it's like, yeah, now we'll fix that in post. It's okay. 
You know, should we do it again? Nah, that's all right. It's fine. It's hard. It's moving around. That's it. I think that kind of is giving TV movies a bad name. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> really, especially when you think about Duel at this at basically this same moment historically, which is technically amazing. It's true. It just it, yeah, that was very much uh, one of the things too. I'm, I'm fascinated by in this, and I and I didn't know. I, I noticed like one or two references to it to the on the little talk there is about this film online. Cliff Robertson is drinking throughout the entire movie on got- duty at the police station <laughs> out everywhere he's got a beer or a scotch going he's- constantly and which is really fascinating he's got he's clearly got some kind of mini fridge under his desk in the office because he keeps producing yeah. budweiser's for every for even for witnesses right the guy comes in <laughs> that they think did it and he offers him a beer yeah, at one point it's it, it the uh he uh they're inter- they're interviewing the first the um uh, that uh, the character, the uh, the guy who you know ultimately Richie Richie Todd Keating was their prime suspect. So he, they bring him in, and his lawyer's coming in. Out comes a bud, and the and the mm-hmm. cop across the table looks at him like, "Really? Now it's what you know? <laughs> like, is there no time that it's good to pop a beer? It's really weird. You could see if they had introduced it sort of gradually, like he's drinking too much because he can't deal with all of this. But it really starts pretty early in the film, you know. Mm-hmm. So, oh, I don't know what they were trying to say. Yeah, I can't remember if it's after the titular man on a swing point, but there's one point where it's kind of a rough day, and he's just like, oh, let's go get a drink. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> It's. Uh, I think it's after the, uh, the the test when he thinks that he you know, when he when he discovers that he might be lying about everything. He's like yelling at everybody, and then he and Peter Masterson they go out for a beer at this this crazy club that uh, right. Frank Perry loved like weird nightclub scenes. There's a bit in Diary of a Mad Housewife where Richard Benjamin and Carrie Snodgrass go to a party that just happens to have Alice Cooper playing what? for for like hippies. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like no. you would never, you would never expect a Richard Benjamin character to ever go to a concert, let alone to an Alice Cooper show. And they're just right. like people walking around. It's just that's where he, that's where she meets Frank Langella. Is at a weird Alice Cooper house show, and this kind of feels flown in from that. This this odd. Uh, misunderstanding of American counterculture that like he knows that it's out there, but he doesn't get it. And like, I don't know that uh, from, from what I like, from what they show you of everybody in town, it doesn't seem like there should be a bar like that in whatever town this is taking right. place. And I mean, the original crime was in Ohio. I could never quite get a fix on where we were supposed to be in the movie. But um, mm-hmm. I think the idea was every town had that place where the kids went, you know, where the kids <laughs> went to drink. And that was, you know, or you heard all Cooper, I guess. But man, some, somewhere that is going to make a great connection for the Kevin Bacon game, right? Yes, Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper was in was in like two movies in the seventies, and one of them was Sextet with Mae West, like three months before she died. And in uh, uh, Prince of Darkness, uh, oh, playing that's right. a that's right. wordless street person who uh, right. kills somebody with a bicycle. He's the king of the derelicts. I only remember him from Wayne's World. So, do you come to Milwaukee often? Well, I'm a regular visitor here, but Milwaukee has certainly had its share of visitors. The French missionaries and explorers were coming here as early as the late 1600s to trade with the Native Americans. In fact, isn't Milwaukee an Indian name? Yes, Pete, it is. Actually, it's pronounced Miliwake, which is Algonquin for the good land. I was not aware of that. Yeah, I kind of wonder if the the second murder that we mentioned, if that comes a little too late in the proceedings, because this does feel... It feels abbreviated at the end, but at the same time, it does leave you really creeped out. 
I kind of love it because it's this, you know, Cliff Robertson is essentially trying to, you know, rediscover some true thing because everything he thinks he understands is proving to be not true. And he's so convinced that it's Joel Gray who's tormenting him, but he's got no proof. And his friends at the station keep telling him that he's got nothing. And then in the midst of completely losing his mind and, and his grip on the investigation and, you know, his his uh, distance from from work, you know, then drops it, you know, the, then the second thing drops into his lap. And, it, and it's so clear that he's completely lost control of the direction of the investigation. Like, I, I kind of like forgot what the you know what what had even brought them together at that point because they spend so much time trying to figure out his credibility and then this other thing happens and you realize oh that's what he should have been doing this whole time but he's been yeah. so wrapped up in the craziness of Joel Gray that he's forgotten about it I I I understand that it's you know maybe structurally a little wonky but I kind of thought it was perfect it's actually a feature in the book and and I think um uh they do try to make the point repeatedly that this is not a department that deals with murder. This is not a, mm. uh, you know, this is a sub- suburban police force, you know, like I said, in the basement of a high school or wherever the heck they are in this thing. And, uh, and they're overmatched, you know, their, their fingerprints are all over the crime scene, which was apparently really a problem and things like that. So I think, um, you know, that, that idea that from the beginning, this is not CSI. This is not, you know, um, like I said, the I always remember the corner corner shows up in a in a plaid suit jacket. You know what I mean? And uh, it's just another guy, just another doughy white guy, like everybody else. That's definitely to me a feature of the you know the actual proceedings. Is they're really overmatched on this anyway. If this guy's not helping them, they got very little to go on. Yeah, I think Herb Tarlick would look at that jo- jacket and say, "Yeah, that's a little too much for me." <laughs> Cliff Robertson is like so, you know, he's got the movie star tan, but he's just so angry and quiet for so much of the film that, you know, the the, the sort of ordinariness of everything and how how thoroughly out of whack it all becomes when this one thing gets to everybody, which is we don't know who we don't know who killed her and we have no leads. And the one thing we thought was going to help us is now this weird nagging loose end that is giving us as much problems as the actual investigation. I love the meeting with the psychiatrists because it's this great, you know, like who who has the authority in that space? You've got, you know, these two, you know, Cliff Robertson has to lie to get him in the room. And so he's clearly like chafing under the pressure of trying to get something out of this guy. And, uh, you know, he like he you can see him sort of like working through guilt for having him there and for having listened to him for so long and frustration and not being able to solve anything. And he's just sitting there not getting anything out of him. It's clear how much these guys really just wanted this thing wrapped up because this is not what police work should be for them. Yeah, that's 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 my fa- one of my favorite scenes in the film, for sure, is the. The interview with the psychiatrist where he doesn't realize why he's there until you know they begin to ask him certain questions about the satisfaction he feels about being able to be a part of all of this. And his increasing discussion of how the people need to know about his powers and, and that weird self-aggrandizing side. And, and his and his horror at discovering that they're psychiatrists and that, yes. his, that, the, that the questions will be of a psychiatric nature because he realizes how vulnerable that makes him. That if they can actually see through his, you know, kind of gigantic performance yeah. as guy who's in charge of everything, then that throws his credibility and his, you know, search for power into jeopardy. That's one of the reasons, too, that I, I really love the ending. And uh, it occurred to me that basically if they were to make a movie 
when they make movies of this type now, there would be a long sequence a montage at the end showing you the points at which he got the knowledge to impersonate mm. a psychic. You know, the, you would see him working next to the killer. You would see him reading a newspaper account or whatever it was or listening to somebody or talking to somebody and collecting all the data so it would sort of all fit together. But instead, it just kind of veers off in that direction at the end because – even having the knowledge that he collected the data, it still wasn't clear how what his influence over events was, right? So that's what, that, like I said, that the idea of Cliff Roberts talking about hypnosis, which was like, wow, yeah, because really he he somehow had an effect on this guy. That great um, Manchurian candidate moment where yeah. uh, where the character says, "We hardly ever talked. We hardly ever talked," and which is the same phrase that Joel Gray uses. We hardly ever talked. So you know that they're linked, you know that they're in communication, but what does that mean? What is, you know, how does that result in the murder? Did he influence the guy, hypnotize the guy, like Cliff Robertson suggests, or just some, take some kind of control over him and feed off of what he was going to do anyway, which was hurt women? The way that the film is directed and edited, um, it's funny, the guy, uh, the editor's uh, Sidney Katz, who worked a lot on uh, TV as well as a handful of films, but he was mostly like, he worked on episodes of Kojak and stuff like that, but they're, they they work together to basically just keep thrusting you a little more forward in time than you imagined you were about to be put. I think the first thing that he uh, and Perry worked on was The Swimmer, and I think that they sort of developed a language together because they worked on the next few films together, and they developed this way of continuously putting you forward into the narrative so that you can't really look backwards to think about the things that you've already seen, which helps you get this, you know, unsettled feeling because you want. Yeah, I keep thinking about the the opening sequences, which are really kind of really wildly done where you see Cliff Robertson moving through all of these different environments and it's all cut together as if it was one thing after another, but it clearly can't be because he's in different places. Like, you know, hear him getting information, looking over people's shoulders at the police station, talking to the tech, and then he's home discussing it with his wife. And it's all bang, bang, bang. One continuous conversation uh, that he's having with all these different people all cut together as if mm. it was um, happening contiguously. You know what I mean? Uh, exactly. And that was, I think, like, exactly the kind of thing you're talking about where you're just being pushed along by, you know, by events. It's really moving along in the way that you expect a standard police procedural to. That first moment when we go from, I believe it's one of the psychiatrists that we see early on in the film, and he's talking, then it switches to Robertson, and we switch scenes. Yes. I mean, normally that would just be like, oh, that was kind of a clever edit. But instead, in this one, it's like, wow, I am really disconcerted all of a sudden. Mm -hmm. And I like that. Yeah. Yeah, there's some interesting little touches in there. I always remember, uh, you see them talking with that guy in the white coat, the, the the, the psychiatrist was talking about what the killer is like, and he takes out a key and unlocks the elevator. Yeah, that was so strange. That that massive close yeah. up of that key. He, clo- he unlocks the elevator, so clearly they're in a place where you need a key to get out, and they go down the elevator and they get out. And there's a nurse standing there, and he pointedly turns and looks at the nurse until she backs off so that they can continue talking and have their conversation about this weird stuff that they're talking about. You know, it's little bits like that that were, that really you don't even necessarily notice. You know, they're not foregrounded, but they're like it just gives you this creepy feeling like what what is being discussed here that it's so horrific, you know, that you need to lock yourself 
<laughs> you know, I unlock the elevator and then like back off, lady. We're having some serious, disturbing conversation here. It's that uh, that strange male authority that uh, yeah. Frank Perry loved uh, <laughs> discussing Diamond again. You know, with that scene being kind of the whole movie in a in a nutshell, it's about the absence of of women. That basically he spends Cliff Robertson spends so much time at work that his wife is convinced he doesn't want a baby anymore, and they're mm. looking for the you know the murder of. Uh, a young girl who we don't really get any kind of a sense of her parents barely factor into it. The victims that he goes to talk to of other similar crimes are so sort of checked out. It's sort of, you know, it's men trying to make sense of what women went through to the point that they got Joel Gray impersonating a woman for most of the film because he's possessed of her, you know, spirit or energy or whatever it is. So it's, and I kind of love that because it's, this is um, along with play it as it lays the first films he makes after Eleanor uh, Perry divorces him. So there's this mm-hmm. sort of female absence in Frank Perry's life at this point. And so this whole movie is about trying to come up with an idea of a woman that they never actually get around to fixing. And true to form, they get caught up basically suspecting each other and uh, and not being able to do justice to the missing girl. The thing when he goes to talk to the, the first victim of the Keating character, mm. um, where she says, you would only understand this if it happened to... And you expect him to say to you, her to say to you, but she says to your wife, which right. is kind of fascinating. Like the idea that he would ever be in that position was out of the question that it was his wife who might experience that. Also, the um, it's really striking, too. Joel Gray comes to the police station and all the cops are kind of looking at each other like, yeah, you know, maybe there's something to this. He meets Cliff Robertson's wife. And in two seconds, she's like, get this creep away from me. Um <laughs> So she knows automatically this guy is bad news. To further the the, the question of authority, he basically takes for granted that he can go wherever he pleases. He first of all shows up at the police officer's house in the middle of the day when he knows that he can't be there because he's on the job. And then lets himself into the garage where this woman is by herself and just hounds her for no real reason. And Cliff Robertson still doesn't really take her advice that seriously until he learns for himself that he's full of shit. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That it's, that's a fascinating thing too. I think the, the, it's so much about Joel Gray's aggression and sort Mm. of, uh, you know, frustration with not having the impact he desires on the world. The way that he is trying to show off for his wife when he's like, oh, oh, yeah. I, I told you it was a Pontiac. <laughs> That's just like a Buick, you know? Right, and yeah. like, really, they're not the same. And but. I think she doesn't even have like a line of dialogue, does she? She basically <laughs> just stands there and listens to him. Right. Well, and what is that strange thing? Like when uh, Robertson and, and Gray are first meeting, there's like a, it almost looks like a, a screen on the wall in Robertson's office, but it's like lower down on the wall, it seems like. And yeah. Gray will focus on that and talk and kind of zone out a little bit as he's doing his wild performance. And then later on, when we go to, uh, to, to see Robertson's wife, she's painting something, spray painting something white, and it almost looks like the same screen to me. I'm probably reaching at straws. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, well, she's, she's refinishing furniture, but the screen was the screen on which he had projected the images of the murder, of the crime scene. And, uh, and, I, and that was, yeah, that was another one of those moments where he stares at that, he doesn't talk about it, but you, I feel what I felt from that was that's where it was. That's Everything was on that screen, all of the truths of the situation. And 
I think we know eventually his knowledge only comes from talking to the guy who did it. But there's the there was where the real thing was. And it's about that uh, that access of being able to see what was on that screen that separates him from Cliff Robertson, the seriousness of his position and his intent, as opposed to being this guy who shows up and just wants to be part of everything. Yeah, he's such a hangers on just that whole thing of like, oh, can I touch the victim's clothes when he goes in for the test? Oh, yes. And uh, I think, too, there's, there's the the motif, basically, of both, you know, you're fixing up the, the screen, you're spray painting everything white. It's basically, uh, uh, you know, Joel Gray projecting himself onto the victim and onto the crime. So you've got two different kinds of projection, and one of them allows you to see facts, and the other one basically allows you to guess at things so that you can become closer to the facts if only through creepy proximity because you want to be near the action one of the things that i i I managed to track down looking at this too was it's like the psychic was still alive as of 2007 somebody on on a a skeptical website that i found had identified the guy as this guy bill boshears who had like a weird alex jones like webcast that he did uh like a little show yeah he had like this little show he did for years um, where he would talk about paranormal stuff and weird right-wing political conspiracy theory. Uh, <laughs> yeah, really strange. Um, he, he was the original. He changed his name for some reason from Boshers to Boshiers. Probably had some weird legal problems. I don't know. No idea really. But uh, once again, the people are still out there. If anybody you know who was like really guy who did the crime apparently is locked up in Ohio. This guy's probably still out there somewhere. It would be really fascinating to have somebody who track all these people down and look at these uh at this story now and say what really happened how did this really unfold you know mm. i think that's all part of the documentary that's on the olive dvd release <laughs> <laughs> all right we're going to take a break and play an interview with justin bozung author of an upcoming book about frank perry are you tired of stubborn understains in your gusset do you suffer from a peculiar disease which only an expensive series of pills with appalling side effects can prolong? Do you long for a professional movie website and podcast with a sense of humor, insight, and passion that hasn't yet fallen under the thrall of the big studios and basically turned into a soulless marketing hub? Well, we can at least do the third thing. Head on over to AfterMovieDiner.com for all your genre film needs, Americano, movie podcasts, comedy, incredibly large trousers, by fans for fans without added salt, and relatively free of dripping. Our podcast is also available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. The After Movie Diner. Come on in, won't you? Who is Carl Kolchak? He's a reporter. Now that is news, Vincenzo. News! And we are a news paper. We are supposed to print news, not suppress it. With the INS. What's an INS? Independent news servicer founded in 1904 by Enrico Peluzzi. Who seems to have a nose for the strange and unusual. Well, last year in Las Vegas, I uncovered a series of murders that turned out to have been committed by a vampire. And what is the Kolchak Tapes? It's a podcast. All about Carl Kolchak. What's a Kolchak? The Night Stalker. And where can you get it? On iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and at www.kolchaktapes.com. As foolish a game as any that Gordy the Ghoul could make up. 
wonder when Spider-Man goes to the bathroom if the toilet paper sticks to his fingers? Do you ever wonder why Superman wears his underwear outside of his pants? My name is Imran. My name is Anthony. He's the jock! And he's the nerd. And we're your hosts for the Jock and Nerd Podcast, where we sometimes try to attempt to answer these questions. This is a full spoiler podcast, and we swear a lot. Check it out for awesome geek news, interviews, and comic book reviews. Visit jockandnerd.com. We are your superhero TV, movies, and comic book culture curators. Boom. Jockandnerd.com. Jockandnerd. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at proudlyresents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. Frank and Eleanor divorced in 1971. They had made The Swimmer. They went on to make uh, the TV movies for ABC with Truman Capote. And then they made um, Last Summer, based on the Evan Hunter novel, the same name. And then they, of course, made Diary of a Mad Housewife in 1970, which got them all kinds of crazy accolades and acclaim. Carrie Snodgrass was nominated for an Academy Award. And then their next project after that was going to be an adaptation of the Joyce Carol Oates novel, Expensive People. And that was a project that Eleanor had really pushed for. And in fact, it was brought to them by Anne Bancroft. And uh, they got a deal universal for the project. In the interim, before that was to start, they had, they had been to a party in New York, and Frank had met Pete Hamill, the, the writer and journalist. And they hit it off really fast, and they started talking about a sort of revisionist Western. He wanted to really explore the Doc Holliday myth. And so they paid Pete Hamill $12,000 to adapt this, advance this idea he had uh, about Doc Holliday, which turned into the film Doc. Uh, starring Stacey Keach, Faye Dunaway, and Harris Unlin. And uh, so they went to Elmira, Spain to shoot that. And in the, during that time, things sort of got really sketchy between Frank and Eleanor. Frank had, you know, when Diary Man Housewife had come out, they had always been the Perrys. And when that film came out, they started, it was being marketed as Frank Perry's Diary of a Mad Housewife. And it was, in fact, the first time Frank's name was actually on the poster alone. And it was, you know, the age of the auteur kind of coming, um, you know, the, the grand auteur, the one man behind the grand vision. And so Eleanor got pretty upset by that. And so there started to be a rift in their relationship. And so um, tensions built. And over in Spain, while they were making Doc, Frank and P. Hamill kind of had a falling out. Uh, P. Hamill really saw the story of Doc Holliday and why Earp is uh, having sort of uh, homoerotic overtones. And there was some scenes in the script that sort of suggested that, and Harris Yulin and both Stacey Keach were not not into that. And so Frank sort of sided with the guys. And uh, for Frank, the film was and something we could, maybe we could talk about down the road. Is it was a film about Vietnam for him, if that makes sense, and it doesn't for a lot of people. But um, <clears throat> anyway, so Pete Hamill walked off the show. Uh, Eleanor was in Paris at the time. She came and did an uncredited rewrite for Doc. And uh, then went back to New York. Um, and uh, in the interim, Frank decided that he was no longer interested in, in uh, maintaining their relationship. And so, unbeknownst to Eleanor, he came back um, after shooting Doc and, and moved his stuff out while, while she was sort of out of town temporarily working on another project and didn't even know that he had moved out. She had to come back to New York and ran into a friend of theirs where, where you know, then she was told, oh, you know, I'm sorry to hear about you and Frank. 
And so Frank split up, met his second wife, Barbara Goldsmith, and uh, who had kind of already been courting at that point. Uh, basically, and it's not one of Frank's finest moments, what happened then was he went to Universal and basically cited um, creative differences with Eleanor. And the contract for exclusive expensive people was, was uh, rescinded with Universal, and Frank instead cut a deal cutting Eleanor out and decided to move forward with Joan Didion and John Gregory Dunn on adapting Played As It Lays. So this was 71, 72. Uh, of course, Eleanor Perry would go on to uh, script many, many projects. Uh, famously, she would <clears throat> be the screenwriter and almost was attached to direct the Burt Reynolds film, The Man Who Loved Cat Dancing. Um, she famously wrote about the uh, production, changing the names to protect the innocent, if you will, in her 1979 sort of Hollywood quasi-memoir called The Lou Pages, which also chronicles her time with Frank as well. Frank is uh, – his name has changed from Frank Perry to Vincent Wade, uh, Vincent being Frank's brother, his real-life brother. And uh, her name in the novel, Lucia Wade, was uh, Lucia, of course, being her character's name from her 1964 play, Any Decent Woman. And so the book pretty much chronicles the Perry's life, getting together, going through the early years, making David and Lisa, Ladybug, uh, of course, spending a lot of time on The Swimmer. Sam Spiegel's name has changed to Omar. And uh, there's almost a moment where Frank decides to work with Terry Southern and make a, the first uh, uh, version of Candy. Anyways, they call Candy in the novel. She calls it Tootsie Roll. Flash forward to uh, Played As It Lays comes out. It gets mixed reviews. I think I still think it's Frank's finest film. It really sets him on his way. He does get some positive reviews. Um, you know, Anthony Perkins is put forward for an Academy Award consideration. Even Perkins down the road uh, before he passed away would say that Play As It Lays was his finest work, something he would like to be most remembered for. Uh, at this time, Frank is also heavily drinking, smoking too much. He has, just before he goes into Man on a Swing, another heart attack, his second He's in the hospital. He gets an ultimatum from Barbara, his wife, saying, you have to quit. You have to cut back, lose weight, or, you know, we're done. And so uh, we go into Man on a Swing. And Man on a Swing was uh, produced by uh, Jaffe. Of course, at the time, Stanley Jaffe was the youngest president in the history of the motion pictures business to be um, – uh, studio president. So he was running Paramount at the time. So naturally, it's kind of a no-brainer for the other Jaffe brother to uh, approach his brother and say, give us give us money to make Man on the Swing for Paramount. Was that Sam Jaffe was the other brother? Uh, I think it was like, it was uh, Howard Jaffe or Herb Jaffe, wasn't it? It was one of the two. I can't remember the name right now. What about Man on a Swing appealed to Frank? This one seems kind of uh, like an odd choice in his filmography. Yeah, you know, you're right. I think I think in a way it is an odd choice, but also, again, it kind of goes back to a couple of different things. It goes back to a sort of common thematic in his work, which is – well, first off, before I go into that, Frank also – you know, he had, a, he had a way of approaching – he had a way of approaching film properties, right? So, like, he was a voracious reader, and so often his – what he would do is he would, you know, he would get go into his office in New York, and he would get all these magazines and newspapers. He would just kind of go through them, and he'd read the book reviews, and, you know, and he would circle things and be like, hey, check on the rights to this or get me a copy of this. 
And so that was definitely – that's how he found the property. The girl on the Volkswagen floor, William A. Clark, yeah. And so I think what attracted it to him is that, that sort of common thematic, which you know, even though it is a very strange thing in his filmography, it really goes back to I think what I kind of mentioned in a previous discussion we had, I think where um, it's – in a way, it's, it's, it's a film about people in the sense that it's about a, a, a misconnection in some ways, I feel like. And it's a common theme in Perry's work. It's about people trying to connect with each other but never quite being able to pull it off. And, of course, here you have this dissident uh, – you know, uh, the man on the swing isn't Joel Gray. It's it's Cliff Robertson, right? Because he's the guy that's swinging back and forth, right? Going from do I believe that those characters clairvoyant or do I not believe it? So he's the one that's swinging back and forth. The man on the swing title was something that was put on the film last minute. The other titles they sort of struggled with were um, I'll just run through them real fast: Tucker and Will's Interlock, The Fortune Teller, One to One, The Clairvoyant. Wills, benefit of the doubt, and the trance. So they had quite a few they were considering <laughs> at, at a point. And, and, and also, I think, you know, with terms of the interest in the script or the story, I think it was sort of um, coming into the sort of height of the subject, right? I feel like, you know, in the 50s and the 60s, we the government had been, you know, they had been testing and doing tests with ESP and, and clairvoyant people and you know it's running this under the radar and so i think by the end of the 60s it was coming into the zeitgeist in a way and so and you can i know you can kind of see it right because you have man on a swing coming up before you really didn't have a sort of film in american cinema that was tackling the subject matter right you had you had uh you know the power or i think william castle made that one film in the late 60s but before that you had the 50s sci-fi films right tackling it in sort of the b movies but then you have man on a swing come and then what happens the year or two later you get inundated with this crazy list of films about telekinesis and esp you have carrie you know you have Tarkovsky's Stalker, The Omen, The Shining, uh, The Imitation of Sarah, Brian De Palma's Fury, uh, Patrick, the Australian film, you know, even Escape from Witch Mountain has has some, some kind of telekinesis in it, you know, the year later. So I feel like, in a way, it's sort of ahead of its time, right? Because it, it sort of touched on the subject that was slowly gaining momentum in the zeitgeist. What do you know about the actual production of the film itself? Man of Swing, the first day of shooting was uh, June 25th, 1973, and it was a scene that was not eventually in the film. It was a scene with uh, Cliff Robertson's character talking to Maggie Dawson's principal. Frank would say later it was a tense set, right? Frank wanted his – He, in fact, in one press report called the set Tension City. It was, it was a tense set, Robertson – and Joel Gray were kind of at each other's throats a lot, no doubt because of a sort of method approach. And they were, you know, kind of, you know, there's a Rex Reed visited the set and wrote a huge piece for, I think, Newsday or something like that. And in that piece, he talks about how uh, how they were kind of chiding each other all throughout the production. You know, Robertson would see Joel Gray talking to a girl and he'd say, you've met my son. <laughs> You know, just kind of chiding each other. You know, of course, in the book, it takes place in Kettering, Ohio, outside of Dayton. But here, you know, in the film, it takes place in this Laurel. And we're never quite sure if that's Laurel, Indiana, or if at the end of the film, it says Laurel County. But we're not kind of sure because that could be Kentucky. And so it's, we can only assume that's sort of a mythical sort of invented uh, area in the United States. And, um, and interestingly, just the way William Clark describes the, you know, the police station in the book is exactly 
exactly how they went for in the production, right? And William Clark's book, he talks about it sort of being this derelict building with, you know, the police offices crowded and for a team of cops working out of a couple offices in the basement. And so that's much, that's very much the way they designed the production. They actually found, uh, and the film was shot in, in Milford in Norwalk, Connecticut, Frank's, Frank's childhood's stomping grounds. And um, they found this old abandoned armory and they turned that into the set, right? They, they actually went down and re- they built a whole police station in the bottom of the armory and put some sets that were used for secondary things above on the other floors. And they turned it into a whole sort of mini studio right there in in, uh, in Milford, Connecticut. You know, so they shot the film and Jaffe was not too happy with Cliff Robertson. And in fact, a lot of the cast and crew were not happy with Cliff Robertson during the production. He kind of, if you watch the film, he sort of looks like he's been tanning <laughs> and he he was known to uh they called him the bronze wonder and he would bronze himself in between takes to the point to where the director of photography adam hollander had to actually talk to him about it. and they had to change the way they lit the film strictly on that premise that he was gonna he knew he was gonna bronze himself and there was adam hollander even told me a funny story when i interviewed him a couple of years ago about um how he was getting like some kind of flare or something in in the camera and he, he he noticed that there's one of the scenes of Cliff Robertson sitting at a desk and he had put a mirror in the in one of the drawers so he would look at his own reflection and see how he looked between takes. <laughs> and it was like shining, some of the light was bouncing off of it and hitting the camera. You know, it was it's all intents and purposes. It was a real smooth shoot, right? Minus the sort of um you know, there's not a lot of back. There's not a lot of backstage gossip, if you will. I do know that, um, like I said, Jaffe was not happy with Cliff Robertson's performance, and so they went back in November '73 and they did some reshoots. They they went back and they um, they reshot uh, a portion of the last scene with the murdered girl's body in the woods, and they reshot the big psychiatric scene with uh, Joel Gray and they also shot the garage scene uh, with Dorothy Tristan and Joel Gray. And they also shot some stuff with uh, Cliff Robertson at the end that came at the end of the picture. We shot some of that stuff just because they, they, you know, they wanted to try to build, I could only assume this was Jaffe's on Jaffe's assistance and that they wanted to build a sort of uh, tension that was, that was obviously, I mean, there's tension between Robertson and Gray, but they wanted to build a tension that in sort of a secondary storyline, the sense that, you know, they wanted to build the idea that Joel Gray may be behind the sort of antagonistic attack on Cliff Robertson and his wife. Inserting that garage scene, they kind of thought that they added that to the storyline. So I don't know how successful or needed that was. I should say it's interestingly that um, you know when they built those sets for the film, they had a, the former a former Disneyland architect from the '60s come in and build those sets in that armory. <laughs> and uh, I'm one of the things that I really like about the, the film is um, you revisit it time and time again. It has that sort of oh, I, I think they're going for a realism in the film, but I also feel. You know, when you revisit it, it has that great foreboding sense and it. it has a sense of dread running through it. You can you can pick that up in William Clark's novel, right? In the kind of opening few four or five chapters, he kind of talks about this sort of sense of dread by mentioning how the weather is impinging on the story, right? How, you know, this, a storm had just rolled through before the murder. And there's this sort of metaphysical sense of dread that's proliferating itself into the storyline, I feel like. And I feel like Frank does a really good job in the film in, in, in portraying that. And it was also, a, you know, the era of occult chic, right? You had growing interest in the occult around the early 70s. In fact, I was looking it up. There was just a year or two before Led Zeppelin had put out that 
put out uh, the immigrant song single and on the dead part of the wax on the single they put the Aleister Crowley quote do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the wall so it was just raising popular culture interest in the occult brooding I think which which sort of makes the film timely what do you think as far as the film goes I mean what's your opinion of the Joel Grey character I think what makes the film so wonderful is Joel Grey's performance I mean I don't I don't know if the film would would work without without that performance in the film i mean that's you know certainly what a lot of the the critics had tremendous problems with this film because when it was released a lot of people said that was you know anticlimactic and it didn't tie itself up and it was you know we're not really sure that they found the killer and so they seemed like critics really seemed to wanted this sort of story lionel tapped wrapped into a neat little bow and wanted to know or not whether gray was clairvoyant or not right so and it, what's interesting about it is it was based on a true story, right? So if you've read, you, I know you've read the book. So, but you know, one of the things that William Clark prided himself on was changing the names in the story, right? And what's interesting about about that though is, in fact, is the the the, the girl who was murdered was actually named Barbara Butler, and she was murdered exactly the time he writes about in the book in the same location. And in fact, over the years, it's come to fruition that who the real people were in the story and that, you know, the, obviously William Clark's the main character in the book in some ways. And of course, he's relegated to a sort of bit part in the book, in the film with Lane Smith playing his sort of role without naming him directly. But the Cliff Robertson character uh, was actually a gentleman named Keith Thompson, who was this, uh, he was a Kettering Police Department detective. And, um, and the killer, or the guy who allegedly is the killer in the film, uh, Keating, is this guy named Jimmy Wayne Howard, who was, in fact, um, as it is portrayed in the film, you know, there was the 12-year-old girl who was murdered five months after the Butler murder, and they they arrested him because there was a witness. And even though they never could pin him to the Butler murder, they, it was the belief that he was the guy that probably did it. And so even though he was never convicted or tried for the Butler murder, he did go to prison. Like the book said, he went to a mental institution for a few years in 1972. He was moved over to incarceration, declared sane. And it's interesting is he's still in jail today. He's still alive. And if the listeners are brave enough, they can go to the Ohio Correctional website and look up Jimmy Wayne Howard. And there's a picture of the real man still alive, 80 years old, still in prison, life in prison. I think it's a great film. I think, again, I think it's in a way it is a little bit of ahead of its time. It has, I think, one recent writer who saw the film kind of said it had, I don't, I don't know if I agree with it, but they kind of said it had a Twin Peaks kind of vibe, an eerie mystery kind of feel. And I'm not sure if I kind of agree with that, but it, in a way it does make sense. And coincidentally, too, the Joel Grey character, of course, in the book, Norman Dodd, here in the film, Franklin Wills, and the real gentleman's name was um, Bill Boshears. He was a local claim to be clairvoyant who also wrote a column for the Cincinnati Inquirer called ESPNU. And he had been approached by the police to help. And he didn't take any credit until many years later. And um, at the end of his life, well, in the last decade or two of his life, he was a famed 
regional Cincinnati television host rehosted a sort of um, clairvoyant talk show on regional Cincinnati cable called Psy something. But uh, his mother was bouncing Beulah Boshers, a female professional wrestler <laughs> in the quite in the in the fifties and sixties, right? So there's a really great backstory here um, through all of this. And so no, but I, th- I think the film is great. I think it's. Um, not too far out of the not too far out of Frank's wheelhouse in the sense that yeah it's him skirting genres right but in a way it's interesting because it's it still has a Frank Perry panache and flair to it because here again he's bringing along Sid Katz to edit the film and Sid Katz of course started out with Frank on the swimmer right he was hired to come in and work on the swimmer he went on and did several pictures with Frank. So it has that sort of that Sid Katz, Virginia Katz, his daughter's touch to it. And the film has a very, at least in the beginning portions of it, it has a very dreamlike feel to it. And I really like that about the film. It's, it's less for me, it's less Frank Perry auteur and more Frank Perry sort of cinematic craftsman or sort of um, what he would sort of come to be known what he was, what he would sort of go on to do, I think, later on in his career with with films, you know, in the in the late seventies and the eighties. But also, the same token, it has a sort of TV movie feel type. So it's got a fun blend. I think it kind of fits right in where uh, it fits in well when, when it was made. Well, you said that the critics didn't necessarily enjoy it, but how did it do with the box office? Did the audiences come in? Yeah, not really. I mean, it was sort of it was sort of a flop, right? If you want to equate it as such, I mean, it, it didn't end up playing on television until the mid '80s, I think, because when I feel like CBS was the first station that ran it. But yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a well received film in the slightest. But you know, I mean, the, the last few with Frank weren't that way, right? It kind of seemed like it was a flop, one flop after the other. You know, played as it lays, but it had received a good re- mixed reviews it, it wasn't a huge box office earner yet it had some academy award consideration that was trying to earn and i mean there's a famous letter in frank's archive there's a letter that he loved this guy wrote him demanding he get his money back for wasting his time to see played as it lays you have played as it lays which is sort of a flop man of swing which is sort of a flop rancho deluxe which is a disaster at the box office i mean it was you know rancho deluxe was a uh, a Western comedy that the studio decided to open up in the urban markets of Detroit first. I mean, it made no sense, right? So it was a lot of uh, bad timing, mishandling of marketing, I think. Though I do remember Dummy, which was his TV movie from 1979. And I mean, it's been a long time since I've seen it. I probably saw it on the first run. And I remember it being great. I don't know if it still holds up. In a lot of ways, I think Dummy has a lot of things in connection with Man on Swing, right? It has a sort of ambiguity running through it. In a lot of ways, the films end very similarly, right? In in Dummy, you you have LeVar Burton leaving his face on the screen, and you get the sense that maybe he's guilty, but maybe he's not. And you don't know for sure. But, I mean, the thing about Dummy was that, you know, Dummy was a huge success for Frank. And also, he had a lot of uh, marketing and press going into that picture because it was timed dummy was timed to coincide with the actual loss or the, the legal case. Right? So like the state of Illinois, or it was like the either Chicago or the state of Illinois ended up suing CBS and Frank to put an injunction out from, from releasing the film because it was going to air the same time that the jury was in for the case. 
And so it got all of this press because, right, because it was like, you know, it was just a big deal because they were getting sued because they worried that the film being aired to the public was going to affect the law, the case. So, but I think it's a great film. I mean, sans uh, Paul Servino, but. Out of all of the works that Frank Perry directed, what are the ones that you go back to the most? I mean, I like all of the films tremendously, and I don't think there's a, a quote-unquote bad film in the batch. I think my favorite Frank Perry films, my very favorites, the ones that I feel are the masterpieces, are probably um, Last Summer, Played as a Lays, Diary of Mad Housewife. And, you know, and I have a soft spot for some of the 80s ones, too, right, because they were – quite maligned and so i have a i have a soft spot in my heart for hello again which is the last narrative film he made is a fictional film it was with shelly long and corbin bernson and gabriel Byrne. it's a sort of supernatural comedy of the era which was very popular around that time and it's a but it's a screwball comedy right it's 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 shelly long trying to be jerry lewis and it's got austin pendleton in it and it's you know girl comes back to life after being ousted by her philandering husband and hilarity ensues and you know if it would have made it in black and white it would have been in cast lucy of all it would have been perfect for the 1930s you know because it's 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 got that aura to it where it's you can just see lucy of all or Catherine hepburn in that role and so it's a real fun film and again i, I really like compromising positions as well I, I that was a film that came out that was cited as you know frank's kind of return to form it was, you know, he'd come off of all the TV movies and Mommy Dearest, and he had been fired on after on working on the TV series Skag with Abby Mann and Carl Malden, Piper Laurie, Peter Peter Gallagher, and so it was cited by the critics as being a real return to form. And, and and it was interesting for him because he really wanted to move in that direction. Right after Man on a Swing, he had sort of felt, in a lot of ways, especially after Rancher Deluxe, that film was sort of becoming passe. Like he 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 tried to even return to the theater at a point. So in the wake of the disastrous release of Rancho Deluxe, he returned to the theater and did Paul Zendel's Ladies at the Alamo with Estelle Parsons, and it was his big Broadway return. And of course, that completely tanked as well. That was something that it did well in previews, and then it, when it went to Broadway, it just tanked. New York audiences are not going to understand a play about four Texas widows. <laughs> is you know it just sort of didn't make sense, and and so uh, and then TV movies came after that. Mommy Dearest. Um, in the late '80s, he decided, much like a lot of filmmakers, decided to sort of be CEO, and he uh, started his own production company called Corsair which was basically an arm of United Artists Distribution, not United Artists Studio, United Artists Distribution. His idea, sort of in the age of the blockbuster, was to create these real personal, less than $1 million films, getting back to sort of character pieces. And so he produced four films, Shock to the System with Michael Caine, uh, was one that he produced, which is sort of his Hitchcock film that he saw. And um, he did this wonderful documentary called Dear Vietnam, which actually uh, premiered on HBO and got such a reception that they pulled it off of HBO and put it out into theaters, which is a crazy precedent. And then um, Miss Firecracker with Holly Hunter and Tim Robbins. Uh, he was going to do something with David Mamet as well, uh, but that kind of folded in the 11th hour because you know, Miss Firecracker had tanked and Shock to the System was a weird film that 
uh, you know, the Michael Caine and the director really saw it as a black comedy and Frank saw it as a Hitchcock piece. And so there was a, a major rift between the, the lot. And so it just didn't pan itself out. Like, you know, Taylor Hackford had done the same thing. He had started his own production company as well to sort of make these sort of, you know, low budget sort of films for theaters that got away from the Schwarzenegger Stallone era of the blockbuster. Now, I know you're not one to kind of laze about. You always have a lot of things going. So can you tell me about some of the projects that you're working on? First of all, I should ask about the Frank Perry project. Coming along, I took some time off this year and trying to finish it up. It should definitely be done this year and finishing that up and and uh, working on um, the TV series in the in the works that asked to participate in. And it's Looks like it's definitely a go, and there's a really big name director attached to not direct but produce it. Working on a, oddly enough, I'm working on a, a play. I'm adapting a Norman Mailer work for a, in, for like a theater piece for the Mailer estate. That and a couple other books. I'm still working on the Michael Bay book, and I'm working on another book about Norman Mailer. And well, tell me about your podcast, your Mailer podcast. So the podcast started around, uh, let's see, it's 2018. So it started around 2015, I believe, maybe late 2014, probably 2015. But yeah, so it's just, uh, you know, I have exclusive access to the mailer archives. And so I house um, all of Mailer's AV collection at my house here in Atlanta. So I have, you know, 300 hours of television and 300, you know, of television and radio stuff from 1960 up until his death in 2007. So basically bi-monthly, I pull something great, uh, a la, you know, David Gans producing the great flood hour, if you will. And I bring to people with an interest, archival pieces of audio, uh, related to mailer, whether that's a, a lecture he gave, um, or, um, you know, on a rare appearance to do a reading or an interview or, um, you know, some piece of archival audio of people discussing his work or I go out and interview people connected to Mailer, whether that's um, other writers or people that worked with him or his editors or whatever. And uh, so I present it, like I said, bi-monthly over on uh, MailerSociety.org. And it's on iTunes as well. It's been mentioned in Vanity Fair magazine. One of their to listen to podcasts in I think 2016 or 2017 they gave it a little write up. So yeah, it's not a big deal. It's just something I kind of do with the material to, to raise uh, awareness and continue the legacy of Norman Mailer. Not a big deal. It sounds like a big deal to me. It's fun, but I mean, I keep it real simple, right? So I kind of go with the NPR format, right? So I kind of the good thing about it is I literally just kind of set up a five-minute introduction where I record something, give it a fancy intro with music, and then I segue into the archival audio. And so, it, you know, I usually will set aside a day, a day every three months, and I'll record 10 episodes. And um, I'll send them over and they'll get uploaded, and then I have to work on it again for another three months. Well, hey, man, it is always great talking with you. Thank you so much. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to having you back on the show during the 2001 episode. Yeah, that'll be good. That'll be something epic for sure.
right, we are back and we were talking about Man on a Swing. And it's interesting, I didn't realize until we started to get into this that I've actually covered two other films that were written by David Zelig Goodman on the show before. The name doesn't necessarily roll off the tongue that well, but people who listen to the show, people that watch movies, they are definitely familiar with his work. Obviously, he uh, did this one. He did the adaptation of Farewell, My Lovely from 1975. He did Logan's Run. He wrote uh, Straw Dogs uh, or adapted it from the from the book. He also wrote Monty Walsh. And he wrote another movie that was uh, kind of a supernatural thriller. Or at least he, he rewrote the movie that was a supernatural thriller, which was Eyes of Laura Mars. I've always wanted to read Carpenter's original draft of that. I was watching Logan Run, one of these great 70s sci-fi films that seems to be set in a low-rent mall in California. <laughs> it was actually Dallas, if maybe <laughs> that, was. that was where the mall was, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, no, and, uh, and and I will say it was, um, um, you know, talking about the sort of the timings and the structure, I think um, uh, they did a great job, at, you know, uh, whether it was uh, uh, Perry or uh, Goodman who, who did it? I think of really seizing the things that were really fascinating about this, um, because uh, the book sort of treats this almost as one more weird element in an inconclusive investigation. So uh, I think the fact that they really immediately knew that the fascinating thing was uh, about the psychic and his involvement in this, and the great you know open ending and all that stuff. I think they did a great job of identifying what was really interesting compelling about the story well i mean the, the mere fact that it's called man on a swing instead of uh girl on the volkswagen exactly, exactly. should tell you everything about the way that they shifted it that you know it's about it's about the, you know the way that this guy dances all over somebody's conception of reality and also this investigation and makes it about himself and they uh, they f- focus everything so that it leads to the you know maximum effect of unseating people with each new development with regard to the the part that Joel Gray plays in the investigation. That shot of Gray after he channels the murder so much in the parking lot when he just kind of flails his arms and runs off and goes to that swing. That's just one of those moments where you're like, wow, this guy is really giving so much for this performance. Absolutely. I, I don't know. You know, we talked a little bit about Joel Gray at the beginning, but the guy, he's got some chops, man. He can really go for it. And hes it's interesting because he can play so many different roles, even though he it should almost be limited by his physicality, since hes he is a very particular type, just this kind of slight man, shorter, almost effeminate at times, but yet he can pull off so many different roles. It speaks to the the incredible range that he can show, even in you know the sort of very odd dictates of this character, that he comes off as so completely terrifying, despite being, you know, just this the you know what what he couldn't be more than five two or whatever, and he dresses like he's you know Liberace's manager, like he's he's he should be unthreatening and strange and and theatrical, but it it's 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 all sort of finely tuned it's 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 incredibly precise work on his part and his eyes in this are just so sort of depthless and black 
and uh, and terrifying. You know that you know the the stuff where they're getting the messages dropped in the mail slot and all the phone calls and everything. Like it's creepy if you don't know who who's doing it, but it's almost creepier if you imagine Joel Gray running away from their front door after knocking on it in the middle of the night. Right in the rain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's it. He is. Yeah, it's incredible. He is like a like a weird like a lens that focuses bizarre energy in every scene uh, and everything he does, and and in a lot of other stuff too. Yeah, like you say, he he does. Um, he doesn't seem to really have a type other than quirky and uh, you know what I mean and, and odd. Yeah, and he's reason enough alone to see certain movies because he does pull off these different roles so well. But he's he's almost like the spice that adds to stuff. So it's great when he's in a movie as much as he's in this, you know, because too many times he's just like a little bit of a role here, a little bit of a role there. You know, I remember him in Kafka, but obviously he wasn't, you know, the main character. I remember him a little bit in, you know, uh, Venus Rising, things like that. But I'm like... Yeah, give me give me him and Cliff Robertson going toe to toe throughout this entire film, and that's pretty much what it ends up being. And it's and and none of them, you know, gives an inch. They're both completely at each other's level the entire time. That essentially, you know, the 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 moment that sort of let me know that like these these performances were going to be spe- spectacular is first of all the tour de force of Joel Gray just on the phone projecting every creepy thing about himself and cliff robertson sitting there stone-faced and the best one of my favorite moments in the whole film is he literally is him writing down get him in here and pushing it and showing it to uh, uh you know his his uh his underling that's just such a terrific moment it says so much about the different ways that these guys operate um and it's just such a confident little gesture get him in here written on the thing i love that so much a sort of uh, uh, broadcast that the film is about to take a very strange turn. As soon as those white shoes That's come right. down the stairwell. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he should have come in singing Gershwin or something. Joel Gray is also in one of my favorite Altmans. He's in Buffalo Bill and the Indians. I had forgotten he was in that. Yeah, he's his uh, producer guy. Also, you know, and very, very normal in that. Very un-Joel Gray-like. He's just, uh, yeah. just sort of one of the guys in that film. He's, uh, yeah, he's great. Before we go, I want to thank this week's co-host, Dennis and Scout Tafoya. Dennis, what is the latest with you, sir? Well, I'm working well, on another book for St. Martin's. Uh, I have three books out, and this is the fourth uh, book that I uh, I owe them. And um, uh, hopefully that will be uh, out for release uh, next year. And where can people go to catch up with you and buy all your books? Well, if you go to my site, which is just DennisTafoya.com, or to Amazon, where you can find copies of everything that I, I have out there. And Scott, what's new with you? Lots of video essays. If you go to patreon.com slash honored zombie, you'll find every video essay I've put out in the last uh, eight months or so. Uh, I got a whole bunch of series on there that I'm really excited about. I have, uh, as of this recording, just did uh, two new ones on Brian Dennehy and uh, Mira Sorvino for a series on character actors that I'm very, very happy about. Um, it meant mainlining a lot of Brian Dennehy films, which is a very comforting way to spend a week. Oh, hell yeah. I love I love Brian Dennehy so much. It was uh, spurred on by the great Patton Oswalt bit about uh, running into him at a premiere. But uh, I watched all the Jack Reed movies that he directed and lead up to those and just how fantastic those are and how stacked with great character actors. Charles Dutton and uh, uh, William Sadler and Alice Krieg and uh, just terrific, terrific stuff. So yeah, go to patreon.com slash honor zombie. You can find all my stuff there. And if you feel like donating, uh, all the better. <laughs> Did you make any photocopies of your belly? 
<laughs> I love that film. That's uh, Peter Greenaway deserves uh, a special place on cinephile Mount Rushmore, but uh, he should be. He deserves to be much better known. Uh, I love Belly of an Architect. That movie is so wild. Man, no, yeah, Dennehy is just amazing. So good and stuff, and just he's another guy who can play just your drinking buddy and then turn out to be a serial killer the next minute. I always remember his great performance in uh, the movie about uh, Gacy. Yeah, he's uh, terrific. I, the, the, one of the, I, I went back and watched all the really early stuff, so I saw him as a volunteer fireman in the horror movie made-for-TV Ants from 1977. That's one of his first performances. Nice. And he's also a football player in North Dallas 40. He's just one of the guys on the team. Oh. Um, he actually was, I believe, a football player at college. You can tell he's got that great athlete's build. He's got those tiny little legs and that enormous barrel chest. Watched him do great work in the uh, kind of silly, in hindsight, uh, split image by Ted Kotcheff about the cult, which inspired the Strangers with Candy episode about the cult. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I read that uh, Read that story that that was based on as well. Uh, he also, I think he's he's the reason first blood wasn't a rambo film <laughs> yes absolutely well one of these days i've been promising to do a never cry wolf episode oh sure the carol ballard right and then got him in uh the fx was he in both fx he's in, movies or he's just in the fx and one? fx2 he's not in the third yeah. one there was a third there was a one? third fx oh mind blown okay <laughs> good I didn't know. say it was good. Actually, you know, I'm saying that. Maybe I can't imagine. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I made that up. Maybe there's only the two of them. But uh, anyway, directed by Richard Franklin, I think the second one was, who was the Australian Hitchcock. Yes. I'm not going to try to do that film geek one upsmanship because I can't answer that. <laughs> uh, road games. Seek out road games. That's a great one. Yeah, uh, yeah. Although here's – okay, so one last thing here for uh, the the – Elizabeth Wilson uh, in uh, Man on a Swing, who plays um, uh, the psychiatrist, is in Notorious. It's her first film role. She's an uncredited guest at the party uh, that um, uh, Claude Rains and his mother throw. So that's that solidifies for me this film's kind of Hitchcock connection. And she's also in The Birds as uh, Helen Carter. Uh, I think Dee Carter is the diner owner, and uh, she's his wife. Right, right. Yes. I remember that. Yeah, she's one of those actresses where I just saw her and I was like, God, I've seen you a hundred times, but I can't tell you any one thing that you're in. Yeah. And she was also in Day of the Dolphin. Speaking of Day, Day of the, the Dolphin, Dolphin, that's one of the most ins- – I was thinking Frank Perry directed so many of the great 70s character actors, obviously Richard Benjamin and uh, Adam Rourke, but uh, also Severn Darden, who plays the hypnotist in uh, Play It As It Lays, <laughs> who is also in Day of the Dolphin. Which was – was that a Mike? That was Mike Nichols, yeah. I think he made um, what did he? I, it was it was around carnal knowledge. I forget which one comes first, but I imagine that you know he makes Catch Twenty Two and The Graduate, which are these huge successes. And then I believe he spends all of that money on weed, and then he makes Day of the Dolphin. <laughs> Severn Darden is my my favorite all time favorite uh, character actor from that period, who's since completely vanished. But uh, he's uh, the answer to a fantastic trivia question, which was. Steven Spielberg um, made an episode of The Name of the Game called Los Angeles 2017, and Severn Darden was in that, too. And strangely enough, it all came true. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, thanks again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-boot.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and to our Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. You can also link on over to Scout's Patreon as well. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.